Good morning. Thank you for being here. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the executive pastors. We're starting a brand new series today that we are calling Amen. And really what we're doing is we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray uh, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. A powerful, a powerful prayer as we just read it today. Today we're looking at that first phrase, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Maybe you've seen athletes after a big game uh, in their post-game press conference or, or speech, uh, they're talking about how they were praying and, and, and God helped them win the game. And you think, is that what God is like? Is that how God works? Does God care who wins the 49ers-Rams game tonight? If God cares about those things, God is not a Detroit fan. But is that how God works? Is that what God is like? Maybe if you're here today or if you're listening online, and you wouldn't consider yourself a person of faith. Maybe this is kind of what got you to that spot or what keeps you on the sideline. Maybe you see the way that people talk about God, Christians talk about God, or that Christians represent God, and you think, is that what God is like? I mean, today, as we're starting, that's the big question that I want to wrestle with as we're thinking about our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What is God like? We hear that word, and probably for all of us, we think something, some image, some idea, some, some conception comes to mind when we hear that word God. We talk about God's love and, and God's mercy. We talk about God's anger and God's wrath. We talk about grace and justice. But what do all of those things mean? What is God like? And so before we jump into our text today, I want to spend just a few minutes looking at some of the false gods or almost not quite gods that I see in our culture, and not just our culture at large, but within our church culture. Maybe you'll identify one of these. Because I think before we can fully and and, and more wholly uh, understand who God is and what God is like, we need to identify some of the ways in which we've gotten it wrong. And so I want to spend just a few minutes talking about three gods that I see. The first one I'll call a a vending machine god. Vending machine god. And and, and the idea of that is... uh, at the most basic level, what God wants is for us to be happy and healthy. And so if we do the right things, if we say the right things, if we pray the right prayers, uh, then God will give us the things that we want so that we can be happy and healthy. And, and of course, God loves to bless us and, and, and give us gifts. That's not what I'm saying. But we think, okay, A4, health. B6, a new job. C5, okay, I'm going to push that and I'll get healthier relationships. And the problem with this vending machine God is it can be very easy to begin to start to love the things that God does for us more than we love God. Vending machine God. The second God uh, that I see, and and maybe the one that is most prevalent but hard to recognize, is what I'll call my God. 
my God is, is that way that we worship or that way, that God that we, that we create that really says that, that God is uh, on my side and, and we believe God is on our side. But with this my God, God is on my side, which means God's not on their side. You know what I'm saying? If God's on my side, if God agrees with me, then God surely does not agree with them. And we see this in, in very obvious ways and very subtle ways. If you look uh, at politics, we see this all over the place. And, and the most ironic thing is you see it on both sides. If you look at almost any rally or political convention, you'll see people holding signs on both sides that somehow say, look it, God is for us, so God's not for them. And the problem with this, the problem with this is it can skew the way that we think about people. It can skew the way we think about the world. We can miss what God has been doing all throughout since the beginning of creation, of redeeming all of creation. The very first word in this prayer that we're talking about is not my father, but our father. This one is subtle and hard sometimes. Sometimes it's very blatant. Have you ever seen something, uh, something so disgusting or egregious and somewhere someone's holding up a sign that tries to say that, yep, this is what God wants. And you think there's no way. But other times it's subtle. And it can be individual or corporate and my God. The last God, we've got vending machine God, we've got my God, and the last God is what I'll call angry God. Uh, in high school, the cafeteria was the place, maybe it was like this for you, uh, the cafeteria was the place where fights happened. If there was going to be a fight that was going to break out, it was going to happen at the cafeteria. And one day, I'm sitting there eating my lunch, and I see over here, you know, it, it's beginning to happen. People are starting to stand up. You can tell what's about to happen. And I look over, and I see these two guys starting to fight. And we had this one custodian. His name was Jim, Jim Bass. And he lived for these moments. And so as I'm watching this fight over here, out of the corner of my eye, I see Jim start to run across the cafeteria. But then he stops. He's not even running. He gets up on the, the long tables, and he's bounding from table to table, over the tables to get there quicker so that he can break up this fight and hold these two people back until other teachers and people can help and break up the fight. See, a lot of times I, I think we see God, and God's over here. And we're over here. And God is so angry and so uh, displeased and so upset with us uh, because of our sin, because of all these things. And we see Jesus somehow in the middle, like Jim Bass, trying to hold God back from us. Now hear me, I'm not saying that God's anger isn't real or God's wrath isn't real. But I think when we start there, with God as predominantly an angry God, it can elicit all sorts of responses of fear and guilt and shame. And we see in our world, fear is a powerful motivator. But is fear the motivation that God wants for us in responding to who God is and what God is like? So we have these three gods that maybe in part there are truths a little bit, but as a whole, we recognize that they fail to understand who God is and what God is like, but it leaves us with that question. Okay, so then what is God like? 
I want to spend some time today looking uh, at the Gospel of John. We're going to be in the 14th chapter, the 13th chapter, a little bit all over the place. John's Gospel is unique. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, a lot of the stories they tell, scholars kind of agree that Mark was probably written first, and that Matthew and Luke used Mark uh, to kind of, kind of as like a framework. And so they used Mark's gospel, and then they would write their own gospel, including a lot of the same stories, but with their own twists, their own perspectives. And so a lot of the central main stories uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the same, but then you get to John's gospel, and John's gospel kind of seems like it's over here on the island, where some of the central stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell they're not in John's gospel. And some of the main things that John spends his time writing about, we don't see anywhere else in the other three gospels. I, I love the, the early church fathers, as they, as they were reflecting on John's gospel, they said, it's like a pool. A pool that children can wade in and elephants can swim. Because on some levels, John is the most simple gospel. In some ways, it's the most simple gospel, and at the same time, it can be the most profound and complex. And I want to spend some time looking at that. One of the, of the hallmarks of John's Gospels, if you have one of those Bibles like I have, where Jesus' words are in red, you see that John's Gospel is full of red letters. A huge portion of John's Gospel is, is dedicated to just Jesus' dialogue and Jesus' words. And John kind of has this structure. All throughout the Gospel, John... Uh, does this. He says something or records something that Jesus says or does. Jesus says this, John writes it down. Jesus does this, John writes it down. And then John records how people respond to that. Jesus says this, how do people respond to this? Jesus does this, how do people respond to it? And oftentimes the responses are confusion or frustration or anger. And so I want to spend some time uh, looking at one of those stories, looking at some of the words of Jesus as Jesus is talking to his disciples and spend some time asking ourselves this big question in the midst of this text. What is God like? John 14, starting at verse 1, says this, Do not be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Some translations, if you have uh, like the NIV right in front of you, it'll say, believe in God, believe also in me. I, I think this, which is the common English Bible, is, is a more accurate translation with the word trust. Because what this is recognizing is that this faith is not just something that happens up here between the ears. It's not just something that we believe or we think. But this life is trust, which means that it consumes all of us, not just our minds, but all of our bodies. He says, do not be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And what he's doing right here is John is, or really Jesus, is drawing on this connection that we see all throughout John's gospel. That Jesus is alluding to this connection between Jesus and God. And Jesus isn't very subtle about this. He's not, you know, he's not being sneaky when he makes this connection between Jesus and God. And yet, there still seems to be this confusion. He goes on to talk about how he's going to go to his father's house and prepare a place. And Thomas, Thomas says, well, how are we going to know how to get there? How are we going to know the way to get to that house? And in verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have really known me, you will also 
know the Father. You see that connection even being furthered here? Jesus is saying right here, hey, when you're looking for God, when you're trying to find God the Father, look right here. Look no further. And yet still, I I don't know if the disciples, maybe they had their expectation of what the Messiah would be like, what the Messiah uh, would do. Because they're still missing it. And Philip says, well, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus, just, just, just show us God and we'll be good. And I imagine that Jesus has to be exhausted here. I mean, he's trying, he's laying it all out there and maybe he just responds with like, oh, oy vey. But here's what John writes that Jesus says. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been with you all this time, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I mean, he spells it all out right here. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is saying, do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know who God is, what the character of God is, what God is like? Look at me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one and the same. Though we are separate, we are one and the same. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus, who is the full revelation, who is God and the full revelation of what God is like. What I love, though, what really punctuates this is when we recognize where these words of Jesus fall in the life of Jesus. Because if we flip back just one chapter, chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples and he's recognizing that his time on earth is drawing to a close. And so what he says and what he does is super important at this phase of his life and ministry. And as he has the disciples gathered near the end of his life, he does something that nobody really expects Jesus to do. He washes the disciples' feet. And our normal reaction when we hear this, when we hear about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, normally what we think is, oh, it's gross. I hate feet. That must have been so smelly. But I think if we understand some of the cultural dynamics that are here, we'll really understand what Jesus is demonstrating Because for this culture, they were driven by this idea of honor and shame. Honor and shame. In this first century Mediterranean culture, honor was everything. Honor wasn't just something you wanted for or wanted, but honor was something that you worked your whole life for because honor was like a a social currency. The people who had more honor were held in higher regard had better social status. And so the goal of one's life was to accumulate more honor. As I was typing some notes this week, I typed accumulate, and my my computer auto-guessed what I was trying to say and auto-guessed accumulating wealth. And the same way that we look around and our culture seems obsessed with accumulating wealth, first century culture was all about accumulating honor because that honor 
If I was gaining honor, it wasn't just about me. It was about my family and my community. And the same goes, if I was losing honor, that wasn't just a reflection on me. That was also a reflection on my community and my family. And so the number one goal of life in this culture was do whatever you can to gain more honor. And this task of foot washing, washing people's feet, was reserved for the person with the lowest honor. Many scholars believe that the act of foot washing was even below slaves. Reserved for the lowest of the low. I was trying to think, do we have anything like this in our culture? Any jobs that are just like... uh, And I couldn't think of a great example, but this fall, the staff and I, we were up on Mackinac Island for a retreat. And as I was up there, uh, there were some people riding around bicycles, and they had this little box attached to the back of their bike. And every once in a while, they would hop off, and with a shovel, they would scoop up the horse poop and put it in the box in the back of their bike and then hop back on and keep riding to the next pile of horse poop. And I think that might be close to washing feet. But this foot washing was a demonstration that I am the person in this group that has the least amount of honor. And so we can more rightly understand the disciples' shock when Jesus, the master, the teacher, takes off his outer garments, gets down on his knees, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. This just wasn't an act that was smelly or yucky or gross. This was Jesus assuming the position, the lowest position of honor of anybody in that place. But what Jesus was doing was so profound. Because Jesus, like Jesus so often does, is Jesus is flipping the script for what we think. Jesus is demonstrating that when it comes to the kingdom of God, you may think this, but really, it's this. It's taking what we know and flipping it upside down. And Jesus, by doing this, is not just demonstrating how one may achieve honor or what is honorable in the kingdom of God, but how and what it looks like. Jesus is demonstrating this important, fundamental truth to the kingdom of God, not just about Jesus, but also about God. Because this foot washing was really symbolic of the work that Jesus would be doing in a few more chapters as Jesus hung on a cross. Because if washing feet was an act of shame and lacking honor, There wasn't anything more shameful in this culture than being crucified on a cross, hanging before everybody so everybody can see that person has no honor. And yet Jesus is demonstrating something here so profound and so fundamental. Through these acts of humility, Jesus is demonstrating That Jesus and God, that the fundamental, the essence of who God is and what God is like is this self-giving love. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus as he washes the disciples' feet, as he hangs on the cross, as he assumes the position of the lowest honor to say that the essence of who God is, the character of God, is always seen and defined through this self-giving love. Love. 
And it's this self-giving love. When we look through this, when we use it like a lens, like these glasses, when we look through self-giving love in this way, we can rightly see a God who is merciful. We can rightly see a God who is angry. We can rightly see God's justice, God's wrath. We can rightly see God's grace. All of these things, all of these characters of God can come into perspective when we look through this lens of self-giving love. So what does this mean for us, though? What does this mean for us today? There's a couple things that come to mind. The first and maybe the, the most basic place to start is that we can remember, we can hold on to this truth that when we have questions about what God is like, we can look to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we're never going to have questions or everything's going to be answered. But in Jesus, we have a much clearer picture of who God is and what God is like. When you're confused or frustrated, uh, when you're uncertain, when you're wrestling with, is this really what God is like? We are invited to look to Jesus. And the second thing that we can remember is that it's all self-giving love. From the very first breath of creation till all things are restored in new creation, we see a God who is motivated and moving through this humbling, self-emptying, self-giving love. That is who God is. That is what God is like. See, we've just come out of this uh, mini-series the last few weeks uh, where we're talking about holiness. And God, uh, Rob laid the foundation for us, did the groundwork as, as we thought about what it means to be holy. And that's the first line in this prayer, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I love the translation in the Common English Bible that says, uphold the holiness of your name. Uphold the holiness of your name. What does it mean to uphold the holiness of God's name? See, and this is my concern when we talk about holiness. My concern is that oftentimes when we think of holiness, the first things that come to mind are the things that we don't do the things that we avoid, the things that we stay away from. And certainly, don't hear me wrong, certainly if we want to be a holy people, there are things that we need to abstain from, things that we need to avoid because we recognize the way that those things can get in the way and mess up the relationship we have with God and the relationship we have with others. And we don't want to do anything that does that. So certainly, there are things we should avoid. But my concern is that when our first response or our first thought of holiness is the things that we don't do, sometimes it can put us at a weird position or a weird place with other people. We can kind of distance ourselves and say, oh no, I'm holy. And we look at people and we see the things that, you know, oh, they're doing this or they're doing that. And when we put ourselves in that adversarial position with other people, it can be really hard to love them well. It can be really hard to be the people that God wants us to be. Because holiness is just as much, if not more, about what we do or the orientation, the posture of our lives than it is about what we don't do. Does that make sense? Holiness is just as much, if not more, about what we do and our orientation and posture towards the world than the things that we just say, oh, no, 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 no. 
I'm holy. And that holiness, that holiness of God and the holiness that we're called to reflect can rightly be seen and understood when we see God as a God of self-giving love, as we see God exemplified in Jesus washing the feet and hanging on the cross. It's all, it's all love. It's all self-giving love. When you and I hear the word power, we often think of dominance. But when Jesus speaks of power, the power of the Spirit, Pastor John prayed about this, it's the power to serve, the power to heal, the power to forgive and restore, the power to uplift and include, the power to stand up against brokenness, the power to love. See, I'm convinced that God wants to do a new work, whether this is your first time ever listening to a service, coming to a church, or whether you've been here for the last 70 years. That this work, this slow and sometimes painful work of allowing God's spirit to work out the self-giving love in and through us, I'm convinced that's what God has for us. That's what God desires for us so that we can be the people that God desires us to be. When we talk about love, we often talk about love as an action. And it is an action. certainly is an action. But before love is an action, before love is a, is a verb, it has to be a virtue. Meaning that God has to work it in us before it can go out of us. And that love, which is a virtue, begins to change the way that we see, change the way we think, change the way we talk. It's not just something that's happening in here, but it's happening here and with my feet. It's happening with my whole body as I am reoriented, realigned with God's self-giving love. Church, I think we start this series talking about the Lord's Prayer, asking ourselves, how are these not just words that we can pray, but how can this be lives that we live? Maybe the starting place for us is recognizing who God really is. Allowing God to be made known to us in new and profound ways, to let go of some of those other images and some of those other false gods that we've held on to and come and run to the God who is self-giving love. open to it. Just like we see in Jesus, a life of surrender, a life of submission to this work of God, to this this hard and painful work of humility and love, we are invited to also surrender and submit our whole selves, our whole lives to this work of self-giving love.